let's go ahead and grab a seat and we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you all this morning. If you're new here, um, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the many leaders here at uh, River's Edge. We are currently in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is um, an incredible sermon that Jesus gave about the kingdom of God on a hillside in the ancient Near East um, thousands of years ago. And we've been studying through it as a community line by line and verse by verse. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 7, uh, verse 1, and we'll get started. Matthew 7. By way of reminder, uh, as you're turning there, Jesus began his sermon um, several months ago now in, in our time um, by pronouncing blessing and in essence pronouncing new identity over his disciples. And then uh, go, he said about the business of teaching them how to operate in the inbreaking kingdom of God, which he claimed was now um, coming to pass, coming into reality in and through him. And so he's teaching them how to live in it and contrasting that with um, the way that the Pharisees or the Bible teachers of Jesus' day had interpreted life with God. He's saying, no, 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 a whole new thing is starting. A new kingdom is emerging in and through me. And, and it's not gonna be like that old form of righteousness um, that you operated under before. And so now we're, we're turning a bit of a corner um, and, and coming around a bend in the sermon and, and getting into a new section, so to speak. And, and in this section of the sermon, Jesus is going to uh, warn his disciples about threats that they will face or, or traps that they risk falling into as they seek to operate in the inbreaking kingdom of God. And the traps that he uh, mentions specifically are the traps of wealth, worry, reputation, and judging others. We uh, talked about wealth a couple weeks ago, right before Palm Sunday. And if you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that we talked about worry and anxiety. Uh, next week, we are going to talk about reputation or really hypocrisy, as Jesus uh, called it. And today, we are talking about the, the, the trap or the threat to the kingdom of judging others. So now that we've kind of oriented ourselves a bit within Jesus' sermon, we're ready to pick up. We're in chapter seven, verse one. This uh, is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample you under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we join in the Lord's prayer by saying, um, Jesus, come, your, your kingdom come, your will be done um, on earth in Spokane as it is in heaven. 
And we realize as part of that process, you want to transform us into conduits of your kingdom, into participants of your kingdom. And as we read um, these words that you spoke thousands of years ago, um, may, may we see their relevance today. May we actually hear the heart behind what it is that you're trying to say. And, and Jesus, we're, we're actually coming before you as a community and asking you to shape us, asking you to change us, asking that we would be uh, different when we walk out of the doors in, in a few minutes. And that's only possible when you're at work among us. So we say, Jesus, come in your name. Amen. In our post-Christian culture, the church has gotten a bad rap for a lot of things. Uh, things like the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and these uh, events, which were terrible, that happened um, thousands of years ago uh, or hundreds of years ago, uh, in all honesty, have kind of been blown out of proportion. Uh, while at the same time, many of the absolutely remarkable and earth-shaping movements that the church has instigated have kind of been uh, attributed to other things, swept under the rug, or ignored. It, now a new story is being told. A, a story in which science and logical thinking have always been sort of the, the light of the world, to borrow language from the scripture. And the church has always been there over the centuries resisting it. And so in our uh, skepticism, the culture has attempted to, to strip the church of her beauty, to, to strip the church uh, of all the, the amazing things that God has accomplished in and through her over the millennia, and, and instead sought to blame the church for all sorts of darkness. And, and just to be clear, we, we don't buy into that storyline. The church is flawed, for sure. Uh, but uh, we believe that history, um, reality, and theology all point the other direction and kind of run against the grain of the new cultural story that's being told. But of all of the accusations leveled against the church, there are some which must be taken seriously. And that doesn't mean that as the church we're at the mercy of the culture. I think that there are times and places where um, the church will have to um, lovingly correct false versions of history and false accusations that are put forward. I think there are other times where the church will be called to lovingly stand in silence as Jesus did before his accusers and, and not even justify certain accusations with response and with arguments and counterarguments. But whenever we hear an accusation of the culture uh, that, that sort of mirrors a, an accusation or a warning from God, we have to be particularly sensitive and soft-hearted in our approach to it. it, it and I think this is, this is one of those moments. There are two accusations that our culture has put forward that I think um, hit a little closer to home within the church than we'd, than we'd like to admit. And the first is that Christians are judgmental. And the second is that Christians are hypocritical. 
And we're gonna examine one of those today, right now, and the next one uh, next Sunday. And the two are related. There's a sense in which they kind of go hand in hand, but these are, are some of the warnings Jesus gives as he gets to the concluding thoughts of his sermon. Today, we are focusing on the act of judging, or really condemnation toward others, in which we are confronted by Jesus' simple statement. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. You can take that down actually. Um, Isn't it curious uh, that that's one of the accusations against the church? It it, it seems ironic that thousands of years later, some of the most um, quote unquote religious people in our society um, also appear to be the most judgmental. Uh, Far from um, ridding us uh, of our judgmentalism, religion appears on its surface at face value um, to actually ingrain it, uh, to to perhaps even promote it. And and this sense is only enhanced um, by our culture's move toward relativism, in in which uh, whatever you believe is true for you. Your truth is is your truth, and no one is to tell you otherwise. And and sort of the central guiding principle of our culture is acceptance, which uh, on its face seems like a really good thing. But it's acceptance of everyone, no matter who they are, what they believe, or even really what they do. Oh, except for the religious people, because they're not accepting. So you don't have to accept them. And within the culture, you shouldn't really judge anyone for for anything, but you can judge religious people because they're judgmental. And and, and so there's there's a little bit of irony in that, Uh, but within this culture, to claim that you have exclusive truth um, is to to, um, kind of go against the grain in the culture. It, it is to, to, to rain on their parade, so to speak. And the response is, well, you're not being loving, you're not being accepting, and you're not being quote-unquote open-minded. And so over and against this, this culture of relativism where there's no concrete truth, everything, anything that's true for you is, is true for you, um, which, which is really kind of just a platform um, for, for hedonism and, and just kind of pleasure-seeking, self-centered existence. But over and against that culture, you have this group of religious people going the other direction saying, no, 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 there really is right and wrong. Not everything is relative. And oh, by the way, asterisk, footnote, you're wrong. Which is the very last thing that the rest of the, the, the culture wants to hear. And and hence, those with strong religious convictions in our culture uh, are only further marginalized and labeled. They're non-accepting, they're bigoted, they're judgmental, they're going against the grain, they're closed-minded, they're exclusive. While those within the religious framework, kind of looking back out at the rest of the culture, says, hey, that's wrong. And 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 you're, you're drunkards, and you're promiscuous and you're and and they just kind of go down the slit they understand right and right you're homosexuals you're liars you're sinners you're corrupt inside the religious framework looking out kind of pointing fingers throwing stones and those on the outside looking back in respond with the all too familiar phrase 
You have no right to what? To judge me. And so most of the time, it feels as if we have two options. We can stand with the the quote-unquote religious and, and their deep convictions of right and wrong, casting stones from a distance, or we can join in with the cry of the culture for universal acceptance and eventually relativism and sort of embrace more of this hedonistic, your truth is your truth, do whatever feels good to you sort of mentality and and kind of slip into a culture or existence where we are never confronted with any sort of universal truth. So so which do we choose? Which direction do we go? How do we move forward in a world of relativism while holding um, deep convictions about the way that Jesus has called us to live, about right and wrong human behavior? Well, Jesus has come to show his disciples a better way forward. Do not judge, he tells them. But, but what does he mean by that? And, and, and how do we go about accomplishing that? First, uh, let's start by talking about what Jesus doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that there is no right and wrong or that you should never discern right and wrong or that you will never be in the wrong or encounter someone who is in the wrong and, and know it. N- none of those things are true. There absolutely is universal truth. In fact, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And and, and every relativistic bone in our body cries out against Jesus' words. Okay, there is universal truth. There is right and wrong. There is Sin is real, and people inside and outside of the church are are constantly being entangled by it, are are constantly being smothered by it. To, to, To close our eyes to that reality is not helpful in the slightest. My son Moses, who some of you have seen running around this morning, He's our oldest. He's going to turn two next week, um, which is crazy. Um, but he, he's at the age where if he closes his eyes, he thinks you can't see him. As in, if my eyes are closed, nothing else exists. You can't see me. I can't see you. It's not there. It, and I think that's what our culture's done to God or at the very least to God's truth and direction about light and darkness. If I can't see it, if I just close my eyes, if I set up an alternative worldview in which everything is relative and my truth is my truth, then it's not there. I don't even have to think about it. Well, unfortunately, that's not reality. And of all the ways that we could deal with the reality of sin, that is decidedly the most childish. As a disciple of Jesus, you should actually be growing in your ability to discern truth from falsehood, 
You should be growing in your ability to discern common pitfalls and traps that humanity falls into. So Jesus is not asking you to embrace universalism or to come to the conclusion that somehow everyone is right all of the time. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking you to close your eyes and pretend there is no universal truth or just to pretend everything is well. So by all means, discern um, what sin is and even who is in it. But what Jesus is concerned with is what you do in the very next moment after you've made that assessment. Jesus is concerned with condemnation and control. When you judge someone, in the sense that Jesus is talking about, you're wrong, you're less than, you're in sin, and here's why, you are, are condemning them. And when you dish out condemnation, uh, what you are saying, in effect, to that person is that they are deeply and, and perhaps irredeemably bad. And, and you might not be meaning to communicate that, but that's what they hear when you condemn them. That, that's, what they, that's what they feel. That's what they, that's what they sense. I, I, I am ruined beyond redemption. I, I, I am worthy of rejection. I am unacceptable. To quote the famous theologian, Dwight Schrute, you are worthy of being shunned. Right? And that's not what you're trying to say, but, but that's what they hear. I am sentenced to exclusion. That's what gets communicated. And so this form of judgment that Jesus is talking about, in essence, is just a form of behavioral engineering. It's just a form of control because communication, sorry, not communication, condemnation communicates rejection of self. It, it, it cuts deep. It impacts the people who hear it. And honestly, that's why we do it. Because we want to impact people. We, we, we want people to change. We want people to feel the weight of their wrongness. And so we use blunt instruments of blaming and condemnation. The problem is that these tools evoke a similar response. Which is why Jesus says, do not judge or else you will be judged. If you go around judging and rejecting everyone else, their most immediate impulse is going to be to turn right back around, judge, blame, condemn, and reject you. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And this principle of, of judgment is true in every human relationship. Uh, I have two boys now, which is crazy. Um, so I think increasingly about what type of dad I want to be. And, and in thinking about that, um, as a father of two young boys, I have all sorts of moments where I'm tempted to use condemnation as a form of, of control. And in, in, in fact, there are some situations where I can hardly think of an alternative to condemnation in, in solving the problem in front of me. But the problem is that that condemnation naturally elicits counter-condemnation. 
And, and the older my boys grow, uh, the more sophisticated their response will become. But ultimately, if I judge and condemn and in a sense really reject the, the type of child that they are, then they are going to turn around and judge and condemn and reject the type of father that I am to them. In the same way, if I stand in a position of judgment and rejection over the non-believing world, well, guess what? They're going to judge and reject the church. And that's happening right now. It is human it is human nature to, to judge and, and, and to condemn and to blame and to shame as a means of behavior modification. We want to, and within that, we, we want to assert our superiority. We want to assert our rightness as well as their wrongness. And we want to force our, our, our quote, wonderful solutions onto the people around us. Which is why Jesus says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. And, and we read that and say, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. I've never been tempted to do that. <laughs> but, but Jesus, he's, he's speaking to an agricultural society. Uh, and this imagery would have made a lot of sense to them. Because um, pigs, they don't want pearls. They, they want food. Lots of greasy food. That's what they want. And so when you take something of value in its own context, it has value, and you take it out of that context and, and, and give it to, to a pig, it, it, they just stare back at you like you're crazy. What, what is this? I, I can't eat this. This, this isn't greasy food. It has, this has no value to me. Why are you giving me this? I'm, I'm hungry and you're not giving me, you're giving me, this is worthless to me. I can't. I can't digest this. This isn't, this isn't the right context for this. A pig feels about pearls the same way your neighbor feels about unsolicited advice. The same way society feels about a church that condemns and rejects from a distance. Are you seriously trying to tell me how to live my life right now? Seriously? You, you live your life. I'm, what are you doing? Might be valuable in your eyes. That's not valuable in mine. I didn't ask for that. And, and, and so what happens is that when you force what, what could be a beautiful and fitting solution onto the unwilling, you're throwing pearls to pigs. And, and Jesus says, they will trample your condemnation and unsolicited advice. They, they will trample that under their feet, and then they will turn and tear you to pieces. If, if only through social media posts. And I misunderstood this passage for years. I, I thought that judging was about discerning if someone was in the right or the wrong. So I thought, okay, I can't judge anyone. I can't actually say if anyone is, is in the right or in the wrong because Jesus asked me not to judge. And I thought the pig's comment had absolutely no place here. Uh, wh what is that doing? And then a a as I grew a little more in, in my faith, I thought, oh, the pearls, um, this, this holy valuable thing, that must be the gospel. And, and the pigs, well, well, that must be th the people who are unworthy of the gospel. Have you ever heard that interpretation before? And, and so the, the pearl becomes the fact that Jesus loves you 
And, and, and the pig is Frank in accounting. Okay? Frank. Hate that guy. Like, what a, what a jerk. What an idiot. Wouldn't even prove my expense report. So mean to everybody. He doesn't deserve the gospel. He doesn't deserve love. He doesn't deserve, deserve Jesus. Frank. Bet his mom named him after a hot dog or something. But, but the point of the passage it is not that some people are pigs. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. The point, I hope no one's named Frank here, sorry. Um, uh, the, the, the point The point of the passage isn't that someone is a pig or undeserving. The point of the passage is that you're acting inappropriately and and you're giving them um, something that isn't of real value. It's not in its proper time and its proper place. The pearl is our manipulative plan that we seek to impose on someone who is in no place to receive it. If you want to see this principle at work, the next time um, your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or you know, cousin or whoever has a birthday party, give them a dieting book and, and just, just see what happens, okay? And, and maybe you're really passionate about dieting and maybe you've discerned that they could probably benefit from some dieting. And, and here's my glorious solution, my favorite dieting book just for you. And, and see what happens to their face when they open that as their birthday present. What? I, I didn't ask for that. Give them a short-term gym membership. What? What? That, that's, that, that's throwing pearls to pay. I didn't ask for that. You're condemning me and manipulating me and, and giving me a solution that I didn't even ask for. And so rather than controlling or manipulating, rather than forcing our glorious solutions on the unwilling, Jesus gives us a new paradigm and an alternative to judgment and condemnation. In the very next paragraph, he says it this way. He says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, this is God's whole will for our treatment of one another. This is the answer. This is the alternative to using blunt instruments of shame and condemnation and and poorly written Facebook posts. And Jesus is saying, if we are to learn to live together as humanity was intended, locally and globally, with those who are closest to you, uh, family, friends, neighbors, enemies, chances are some of the people closest to you, but with everyone, then in the power of the kingdom, we must abandon the deeply rooted practice of condemning and blaming. And, and as we do the difficult work of freeing ourselves of this habit, we actually find that the power of God's kingdom is more freely available to us, that we begin to operate in it more fully, allowing us to bless and guide those around us in, in a way that's disarming and inviting and effective and beautiful and doesn't get you kicked out of a birthday party. And yet, 
at first glance, um, th- this seems impossible. I mean, can, can we really do that? Just like Jesus called to abandon lust or anger. I mean, seriously, can we, can we really live in, in that place? Can we navigate personal relationships without telling people they're in the wrong or, or that we disapprove of them? It, we can hardly imagine what that life would be like. It is human nature to both receive and to dish out judgment and condemnation. And yet the second that we proceed with those methods, we've disqualified ourselves because we have a plank in our eye. And I don't want us to miss this. These thoughts that Jesus is unpacking, they're not unrelated. Okay? So so when Jesus says, how can you say to your brother Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I've always loved this verse. And, and, and I, but I've always interpreted that to mean I have no right to point out sin in someone else's life because I have sin in, in my life, right? So if you're familiar with the story, let the, let the person without sin, let them cast the first stone. And, and so I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is the same thing. And there's, there's an element of that in here. I don't want to throw that idea out altogether. But Jesus is not saying, hey, clean up your act and then you can go and condemn your brother. That's not it. The, the, the plank isn't like this habitual sin that we have on the back burner that then prevents us from interacting with others in, in that way. So, so it's not that like, okay, before you condemn Ian for watching racy movies, okay, oh, don't forget, you really cuss a lot when you're playing video games. I know, okay, I guess I can't condemn, and that's not true of Ian, sorry, Ian. Um, but it, it's not that, oh, I have this other thing that I haven't solved yet, so now I, now I can't condemn Ian. But the second I solve it, now I'm gonna go, and now I can condemn him. That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, no, no. The plank is that you have approached your brother holding the cold, hard knife of condemnation. And until you put that knife down, until you change your tone, you have no right to judge your brother. Not even a speck, no right at all. And so the question becomes, how on earth do we pull this off? How can we possibly communicate correction in a way that doesn't communicate rejection? Didn't mean for that to rhyme, sorry. But the answer to this dilemma that we're stuck in And the answer we probably don't want to hear is that it takes love and it it requires maturity. These are the words of Paul. I'm writing to the church, a church that's trying to to work through these exact same issues that Jesus is talking about. And and this is what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin and, and you know it because you know the difference between right and wrong and you can discern it, then you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or else you may also be tempted. 
Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. There is more embedded in these simple sentences than we have time to unpack. Um, But as we close, I want to highlight a few points from this passage that beautifully capture God's heart for correction without condemnation. We, we want to bring about behavioral change using the blunt um, club of, of emotional manipulation. And, and it's a club over the head followed by, oh wait, and here's my solution to the problem I've just condemned you for. Here, take these pearls and just pour some milk on them and here, here's a spoon, okay? And, and what that communicates to the culture is nails on a chalkboard, But Jesus has a different way. And so rather than than this blunt method that we've been trained in since birth, God has this sort of precise, gentle, loving surgery that still allows us to get to the heart of the problem um, while being rooted in this principle of loving the other person the way we love ourselves. So as we close, three simple thoughts to keep in mind when it comes to correction without condemnation. When you are tempted towards judgment of anyone in any context, I want you to remember this. First is to be spirit-filled and mature. Paul says, you who live by the spirit should approach them. Or other translations say, the spiritual ones among you meaning people who are mature, people who have been following Jesus for a long time, who are filled with love and um, the wisdom of God and how to handle different situations. If you are not in a place of maturity, then involve someone who is and take the back seat and learn from them in how to properly approach a brother or sister. And if you're not at that place of maturity, then um, do the mature thing and deny your impulse to go and correct that person. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, I recognize I'm not this spirit-filled mature person, so I'm gonna let it go. I'm not gonna move into that place. And, and Paul says, because correction is a tricky business, is it not? And, and so Paul says, hey, watch yourselves closely as you set about the business of correction, or, or you might also be tempted. Okay, and that doesn't mean in my mind that as I sit down to correct Ian for watching racy movies, that by the end of our conversation, suddenly I'm gonna be tempted to watch racy movies, you know? Like, oh, we've just been talking about this so long. I just gotta watch one now, you know? Like, I, I, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I, I think a, a better in, interpretation of this phrase is to say, hey, watch your method so that you're not tempted to pick up an emotional club or or to attain this heart posture of superiority over the person, that that's gonna be your temptation. So first, be filled with the spirit and mature. And second, make restoration your goal. Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It's not that they're evil and that your job is to somehow um, slam against and condemn the evil inside of them and then blame and shame it uh, out the back door. 
that, that's not what this is about, but that's literally what we do to one another. That's our mindset in these situations. No, 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 the, the problem is that they're trapped and they need to be set free. And, it, and so it, it's not that, when you think caught in a sin, don't think like Ian's watching a movie and I'm like peeking around the corner, you know, and hiding and like in the name of accountability, of course, and like watching him and then bursting into the room, I caught you. You didn't fast forward through that racy scene or whatever. Like you, you sick, twisted excuse for a disciple. You lustful, you know, wannabe. Like you, and, and just go in there and just slam him for what he's doing. That's not, he, he doesn't, that's not real, okay? I just, it's just an example. But, but when you think caught in a sin, don't think like caught red-handed by, by your scary roommate who's been watching you, okay? The most likely scenario is that Ian, because we're friends, comes to me and says, hey man, I'm stuck. I, I'm stuck, I'm caught in a rut. I've been here for years. I can't shake it. What do you think? And, and, and now the ball's in my court. It, now I have to choose whether I'm gonna respond w- with judgment and a knife to the gut. You're less than, you're dirty, you're failing, you're not trying hard, try harder. Or is my heart in that situation purely a heart of restoration? My brother is stuck, my fellow human being is stuck, and I wanna partner with God in making them unstuck. And this matters because God, uh, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn to the world, to, to judge the world, to slam against its wrongness and, and show the glory of his rightness. No, that's not actually the primary reason he came. He, he, he came to save, to redeem, to restore, to set right the world through him. Godly correction of anyone in any time in any place takes that same heart posture and that same mentality. It says, I see more in you than you see in yourself. And my deepest heart for you in this moment is that you would be set free and that you would be restored. And if I can pray toward that, and if I can humbly partner with God and seeing that come about, I would love to do that for you right now. That is the opposite of distant condemnation. That is the opposite of throwing stones and posting your opinion on Facebook. And, and, and so we say, yes, you will be fully restored when the kingdom comes in full at the end of the age. But some of the kingdom is right here and right now. And we want to see you restored today. If there were two of you, this is weird, but if there were two of you, how would one of you restore the other one? Hey, how, how would you want to restore yourself How would you want someone else to come and restore you when you get stuck? We all get stuck. How would you want someone to do that? You figure that out in your mind and that's it. That's your guiding principle. That's your method for then going and partnering with God to restore others. We're not condemning and eliciting counter condemnation. We aren't throwing pearls to pigs. 
We aren't throwing stones from a distance. We're engaging in restoration in the way that we would want to be restored. And finally, as we close, as the last um, sort of puzzle piece to that, um, Paul says, hey, carry each other's burdens. That, that's how you fulfill uh, all of this. Rather than thinking of ourselves higher than others, we, we carry burdens alongside of one another. Rather than casting stones from afar or, or posting our scathing comments in, in the next blog, um, the way of love actually comes in close and recognizes the fragile humanity of the other person. And, and in love, it, with a, Paul says, gently go to restore those uh, who are trapped and in need of freedom. And, and you were there. Do, do, do you remember when, when you were stuck, when you were in, in need of freedom? I mean, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in, in which you used to live when, when you followed the ways of this world the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, not 10%, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Next slide. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is not your own morality. It is not your inner superiority. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is absolutely no room for judgment in the kingdom of heaven. No room for boasting, no moral bragging, no superiority, no looking down our noses, so to speak. Why? Because all of us were there, could be there, and would be there if it wasn't for Jesus. And, and so as we come alive to that reality of, of the level ground before the cross, so to speak, we get new eyes to see. We no longer see people as right and wrong or even saying, I was wrong and now I'm right. Oh, guess what? You're still wrong. You're dirty. Let me fix you. That, that's seeing everyone through the lens of right and Wrong. Can't you see how good I am? What? I mean, I'm pretty good. Why don't you just be more like me? Here, I, I'll fix this. Let me tell you what you need to do. You're, you're a mess. Actually, I, I have a few pearls over here. It's, it's going to be awesome. But as we come alive to the power of the cross and God's heart for restoration, instead of seeing people in terms of right and wrong, we begin to see people in terms of stuck and unstuck. Oh yeah, and I was stuck too. I was dead and God made me alive. I would love to partner with God and seeing you even more unstuck. And you know what? I'm actually gonna be stuck again in some time and place and fashion. When I'm there, 
would, would, would you mind coming to me to, to gently restore me and, and help me become unstuck again? And so with gentleness and love and humility and great care, we approach the willing, not the stubborn and unwilling. We approach the thirsty to partner with God in the restoration of all things. We are not the guardians at the gate, posted at at the walls of the kingdom of heaven, holding ice cold knives of condemnation, guarding the pathway for those to come in. In fact, in the words of Bob Goff, we are not the bouncers at the door, we're the ushers who show people to their seats and we don't get to decide who's in and who's out. Jesus does. And so hand in hand, side by side, no superiority, no looking down on one another, carrying one another's burdens, we move forward. No shaming or condemnation, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me walk with you. Let's walk back into the light. Let's pray.